This episode of Writing Excuses is brought to you by Audible. Visit audiblepodcast.com slash excuse to start your free trial membership. Season 10, Episode 45. This is Writing Excuses, Q&A at Gen Con 2015. 15 minutes long. Because you're in a hurry. And we're not that smart. Right on, guys. That's fantastic. <laughs> oh, Dan, this. are you here? No. <laughs> Sweet. We are here at Gen Con 2015. Our, our fair studio audience, go ahead and make some noise for us, has, has demanded the opportunity to ask questions of some of the guests here at the symposium. And I'm here with uh, uh, regular host Dan Wells and Cameron Hurley, Mike Underwood, and James Sutter. Uh, James, uh, you've been on the podcast before, and so have you, Mike. So, Cam, why don't you introduce yourself to us? Uh, my name is Cameron Hurley, and I am the author of the God's War trilogy, as well as the Mirror Empire. Uh, the sequel to Mirror Empire uh, is out October 6th, and that's going to be Empire Ascendant. I'm also probably best known for writing an essay called We Have Always Fought. It uh, helped garner a couple of uh, Hugo Awards uh, last year, and I also write columns for Locus Magazine. Sweet. Mike? I'm Michael R. Underwood. I'm an author. I write geeky urban fantasy and interdimensional genre-hopping science fiction. And my day job is North American Sales and Marketing Manager for Angry Robot Books, which is actually super cool and just really long. James? I'm James L. Sutter. I'm the executive editor for Paizo Publishing and a co-creator of the Pathfinder role-playing game. And I've written a bunch of novel or several novels, comics, and short stories. And the novels are Death's Heretic and The Redemption Engine. Fantastic. Let's, uh, let's have our first question. Hi. Uh, my question is, can you give a tip or tips on how to incorporate successfully characters or societies that are from less represented sexualities or genders or races in science fiction and fantasy um, when you're not from that group? Oh, dear heavens. Wow. Writing, writing the other in the one... End. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Here, that that Cameron, is a long panel. That, yeah. Yeah. That's uh, not just a panel worth of questions. That is a, a, uh, a convention a worth study. of questions. Yeah. That's, that's, a, a, that's a Mary Robin that's a Cole career. writing the other retreat yeah. yes. worth of questions. Yes, but I bet uh, we can come up with something good. Yeah, uh, you know, my background is in historical studies, and I tell people all the time, uh, anything that you could possibly think that is a, uh, you could make up in, uh, in the fantasy realm uh, has probably been seen and done before in the past. Uh, I tend to tell people to actually look at real history, at real stories, as opposed to kind of the media dump that you get on TV. It tends to be a very generic, generalized, uh, very washed-out plane of craziness. Uh, so do a lot of research. Uh, you know, challenge yourself. Uh, understand when you're being lazy and uh, look for some other resources besides kind of the, the stuff that's being pushed at you. Absolutely. And, and you know, research is great. And, and also, I've learned, I, my new series that starts next year is uh, about a main character who is Mexican. And I lived in Mexico for two years, but still wanted to take the extra step of running it past many, many readers uh, from Mexico and, uh, you know, Mexican heritage to make sure that I hadn't done anything idiotic you know, so. I used this. I used this example on a on a panel earlier here at the symposium. Um, look for the alien next door. Look for the person in your life whose motivations are very very different from yours, and and which. Uh, which you don't understand. And here at Gen Con, the example that I used was, you got all these people who are standing in line to get that latest thing that's awesome, and you may not identify with that at all. 
um, how do you get inside that person's head and understand that motivation? Because that's really, really alien to you. You know, it's interesting. We've tried very hard with Pathfinder to make a world that is very inclusive. And sometimes people will say, well, why is it, is it unrealistic that everybody's so accepting? And I, what I ask is, so imagine that you live next door to somebody who's married to someone of a different ethnicity or of the same gender or whatever. Now imagine that your neighbor on the other side is married to a snake person or a sentient ooze or you know, an intelligent magical color. Do you think anybody actually cares at that point or even notices differences in skin color or whatever? You know, take a look at what prejudices would even make sense in your world and you may find that a lot of you know, our own world's prejudices don't even fit in your world. They aren't logical. Yeah. The, the best thing, one of the best things I've done is to very specifically seek out voices from the marginalized groups that I'm hoping to, to represent without totally screwing up and to listen specifically for things that they get grumpy about and I use those and I lean against them and then if I think I can do it right and then I use beta readers, I let the characters either repeat or contextualize those frustrations themselves so that I can indicate that I'm aware of some of these things, that it builds in a little bit of self-awareness. And then beyond that, it's looking at the different aspects of difference and then complementing them with similarity so that I'm not exoticizing the character in any way. Thank you. Hi. If you were an aspiring author trying to break in right now, knowing what you know about the industry, what would you do slash how would you do it? Quit. <laughs> no. Okay, no, I say I know. We're all nodding. Yeah. yeah. I say that. I say that because my path was so weird and so lucky, and, and, I, and I recognize that. I I don't know how I could repeat that if I was starting again. And that frightens me a little bit. And I think it's okay to be frightened about that. Yeah, you know, I, uh, I came up through this the hard way, and it's still very difficult, uh, even where I'm at. Um, I, you know, started submitting stories when I was 15 years old. You know, I'm 35 right now. I went to Clarion when I was 20. And if you would have told me when I was 20 uh, that I wouldn't have my first book published until I was 30, I would be like... <laughs> But it's like that that was the path. Um, sometimes you, you know, I think we get, we get jealous of some people who are like, how is it that they got a book deal for you? Sometimes it's luck. Sometimes it's they were just at a different part in their, a different, um, you know, stage in their writing than you are. Some of us have to work harder. I talk to an author named Mike Cole about this all the time. Some of us have to work for 20 years or to do draft after draft after draft. And we work harder than some other people. Um, and you just have to realize that that's kind of the path and that's uh, where you need to go. But as far as like, if I, if I went back in time, I would really wish, I think, that I had paid more attention to the business. Um, I know I pay much more attention to that now, and, and I'm certainly having a better career for it. You know, one of the things that it took me a long time to learn was that my brain works best when I divide editing into, or revision into a series of various tasks. And I edit the biggest problems first, and then the next biggest, and the next biggest. For years, I tried to revise everything all at once, and it was abysmal, and it, I hated it all. I would say just do everything you, get, you can to get paid for writing, um, you know, and really put yourself out there. Anything you like doing, if you want to write novels, write novels, but if you like journalism, if you like games, if you like any of those things, all of those are different avenues to being a professional author, and you might hit more in one uh, quicker than you do in the others, and 
any sort of professional writing will make you better, will give you more insight into the business at some level, and that can be a nice way to get some momentum, even while, even if it does take you a decade to sell that novel. You know, the first two responses to this question were, I did this the hard way. That's because there's no easy way. Um, and you know, the, the, first, the, the two things that I always remember about this job that I would tell younger me, A, this is so much harder than you think it's going to be, mm. but B, do it anyway because it's so much cooler once you actually do it. Yeah. So much better than you, than you ever dreamed. The motivational piece that I need, I mean, you know, I led with quit because I'm looking for a punchline. The motivational piece that I need is rejection is not negative validation. And you should not be requiring external validation to continue working on your craft. For heaven's sake, keep writing. Because those things that you are tempted to see as negative validation are going to happen throughout your professional career. You cannot make them go away. And if you're the sort of person who can't write while that's happening, uh, you, you're going to have real problems. So learn how to keep writing first. And as an illustration, the story I have that was most rejected is also now the one that has been most reprinted. So just because you get a rejection doesn't mean that the story's dead. Yeah, rejection's not failure. It's just another part of the process. Awesome. Let's bring on another question. Uh, Two-part question. One, well, part A. Um, how do you best handle slithering out of making a commitment when somebody says, oh, I'm a writer too. Would you like to read my manuscript? And B, assuming you fail at part A, what is the most tactful way that you can convey, I'm sorry, but your writing mechanics are so painfully awful that I started gnawing out my own liver on page four and I did not make it past that. Okay, I, I, think that, I think that your delivery of the second part of the question is probably a great example of how not to do it. <laughs> Um, I, 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 uh, I, I get asked, I get asked a lot, you know, will you, re will you review a manuscript for me? And, uh, I've gotten good at saying no. I, I'm sorry, I don't have time to read the things that I, I want to read, um, and, and you want to add to the pile. I'm, I'm so sorry, but I just can't. When I do read something and it's, it's not good, and this is tricky, uh, I try and gauge where that person is in their writing career, and I try and give them the advice that they need to fix a problem and to keep writing. I don't want to tell them, wow, this is so eye-bleedingly bad. I haven't seen a manuscript this bad since my five-year-old tried to tell me a story about Legos. Um, <laughs> I, 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 I try and find a good thing. I try and find a correction I can make. And I want to be encouraging, because ultimately, even though I said quit earlier... I want people to keep writing. Do we have any more brilliant? Uh, yeah. Did I answer the whole question? Exactly what you said, pretty much. And just try and be honest in as much as giving them some honest feedback, if you, if you have time. Um, give them some honest feedback that can help them, but it's not your responsibility to teach them everything they need to know. Um, and frankly, they got to learn also that if they're going to ask people, they're going to get the feedback that is honest. And uh, that's going to be real painful for a lot of people, but... 
And it's so it's so um, it's such a challenge too, because so many people really want validation from you. They're not really looking for a critique; they want to be validated as writers. And you know, I, you, you know, the real wake up call for a lot of folks is that you are not going to get validation from publishing. If you are waiting for external validation for what you are doing, that you're never going to be at that point. Um, and so, uh, and for me, you know, to be dead honest, I'm I'm just too busy. And you know, as Howard said, I can't keep up with my own writing and manuscripts that I need to read. Um, let alone, you know, I get asked to do blurbs for you know stuff that's coming out for. From, from publishers and from friends. Um, so I just kind of go, you know, hey, I'm too busy. If someone sends me email, it's just not something that I can, uh, you know, respond to uh, because for whatever reason, I'm just like, I just, I, I generally just don't say anything. Uh, I put it in another folder. My assistant puts it in another folder and, and we just don't address it. Um, as a writer, you know, your time is incredibly precious and you need to be very careful about how you're spending those resources. Uh, and so it really depends on where I'm at. But yeah, usually if it's like, mm, I don't know that we need to go there, I'll just, I'll just let it go. Let it go. Cameron, if I can uh, tap you again real quick, yeah. uh, I think you've got our book of the week. I do. You know, uh, my uh, the first book in my fantasy series, The Mirror Empire, is about parallel universes colliding into an epic battle. One world will survive, one world will perish. Which will it be? Uh, the sentient plants, blood mages, satellite magic. Available from Audible.com. Okay, go out to AudiblePodcast.com/excuse and you can start a free trial membership. And pick this up for free. Awesome. Next question. We've got four more. We're going to answer them very quickly. Well, you know, it occurs to me that we could run a little long and turn this into sort of like a special, wonderful, a special, awesome bonus episode. Ooh, special. Ooh. Because we've, these people have been so patient. Ooh. Uh, so we'll, we'll try and get as many of the questions you as we can. You guys hear that? Yeah. Howard likes you. <laughs> There's right, still a little us. bit of the pill left. <laughs> How much do you telegraph a plot twist before it happens? Okay, so uh, I always, honestly, this goes right back to uh, the first episode we did on Plot Twists with Mike Stackpole. Uh, I have, I've remembered this metaphor ever since he told it to us, which is you are playing, get, name that tune with your readers, and you want them to win, but you don't want them to win until a couple of sentences before you reveal it anyway. And so how soon do you telegraph it? You've got to give them clues but you don't want them to actually guess it until right before, because then they feel really, really smart. Yeah, I, I try to seed it in, but my optimal response is, oh no, oh no, not that, but it had to be that. Everything you guys said was right on the money. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's take another question. So uh, I'm not an aspiring writer, but my roommate is. So how do I be the best kind of guy to bounce ideas off of test reader that I can be with, even though that I'm not a writer, but I'm very interested and I'm very accessible? For those of you not benefiting from the video feed, the person asking the question is made out of gold, platinum, and diamonds, and awesome. <laughs> and we automatically yeah. love him. because Thank you so much, because people who are willing to read your crap before it's good yeah. are are a, a huge resource. And I actually would say that the fact that you're not, you know, you say you're not a writer yourself um, is a huge boon as well because then you can just give them the response of a reader. You can say, I found myself getting bored in chapter five. You know, I, for some reason, I didn't really like the hero in here because of how he made me feel here. You know, you aren't trying to, often writers will try and tell people, oh, what you really need to do is X, Y, and Z. But as a beta reader, that's not really your job because it's their book. They should solve the problem. You can just point out the problems. So that's the most helpful thing. 
Yeah, my uh, my husband's a tabletop gamer, and so he does a lot of GM work, which is actually perfect because we talk out plot problems quite a lot. I'll say, I put this character in this cell, and there's no way to get out. There's this filter that will like totally sear her flesh if she tries to go through it. And he's like, okay, and we start working through problems of, all right, well, what's in the cell with her, and who's outside, and does she have any compatriots on the outside? And so we work through those plot problems together. So sometimes just just being interested and engaged in the story uh, and willing to be kind of the the person to, to bounce those ideas uh, off of, because a lot of times what happens is, you know, when you're listening to someone and you can tell they're kind of tuning out, instead of it being like a racquetball thing where it's like, I bounce and you bounce, and that's, you know, the ultimate and uh, the best, what you're looking for. One of the best questions you can ask, I think, for for a friend or somebody who's working on something is, I'm sorry, I I don't know why, why is that? Mm -hmm. Why is this thing here? Why did these people do this? Why did this thing happen? so that you can poke at a writer's causality, because sometimes we have a strong sense of something, but it's not on the page. I use my family for this all the time. Um, you know, That's become our new thing at dinner. We'll be sitting around, and my daughter will go, are you going to make us solve your pro- plot problem again? <laughs> are you going to eat your vegetables? <laughs> and I'm like, yes, I am. Okay, this guy's in the top of a skyscraper. They need to kidnap him on the bottom floor. How do I get him down without using the elevator? really, really fast. And my kids are all like, okay. And then they they dig into it and go for it. Often that's all it takes, like Cameron was saying. Just someone who's willing to brainstorm cool ideas. Uh, So I hope that helps. Awesome. Let's get another question. How do you decide on the titles of your stories? Do you know the title at the beginning of your writing process, or does it come to you at some point later? Okay, I'm going to tell you a story. Um... I, uh, I wrote the first three John Cleaver books and then figured I was done. And then like three or four years later, got an idea for a new one. And so I emailed my German editor. I was living in Germany at the time. I emailed him and I said, hey, would you be interested in another John Cleaver book? And his response was to email me the cover he'd already mocked up for it. <laughs> complete with a title. And I said, I haven't even started it yet. How do you know what the title is? And he said, I'm just going to change yours anyway. <laughs> Which is a, is, a, is a long way of telling you that I don't really do my own titles because I'm really bad at it. And so I always rely on my editors or my writing group to title them f- for me. I had a really interesting experience because my first three books came out. And I was like, oh, I'm going to call them God's War, Infidel, and Rapture. Uh, well, what does that say to people? People think they're religious fiction. Uh, they're about this badass bounty hunter on this, you know, secondary world, and there's a big holy war, and it's it's crazy. Uh, and uh, and so people didn't know what they were. Like they they didn't know that what they were getting. Um, what I do now is my agent and I sit down once I have you know finished whatever stupid comp title I put in there, and we go, okay, you know, what's the genre we're writing in, and what titles again don't pop in Amazon because we want to have something unique. Uh, and then, uh, so we sit down and we go through just a bunch of different titles and stuff together. Sometimes my editors now go through that with me. Like with Mirror Empire, that was a very strategic title. It was like, okay, it's about mirror universes colliding, cool. Um, but we want something that codes epic fantasy, and the Empire thing codes the epic fantasy. Um, and then I'm, I have a book coming out that is a space opera, and it's called The Stars Are Legion. Ha, ah, it says stars, it means science fiction, our legion. It's about this space opera, ha ha. Um, so I, I have a very strategic way of going about uh, looking at titles now. Yeah, a lot of my titles are the first or one of the first things I know about the project. So Geekomancy, 
It's about geek magic and everything accretes from there. Genre knots is the same thing. Uh, a space opera I'm working on, it, for a long time it was sp- the space opera I'm going to write, and then it was uh, you know, hooked on a space opera because it was influenced by Guardians of the Galaxy. And I just circled around and around and around, and I did what Cameron did, and I tried to figure out I need a title that codes space opera in a particular way and I kind of I went through ten or so really really terrible ones until I got to something that was evocative and thankfully alliterative. Annihilation Aria. See, I love really elaborate, intricate, uh, creative titles like you know James Tiptree style titles that I just love, yeah. um, and I'm terrible at them. You know, I want everything to sound <laughs> like a heavy metal epic, and it never does. Um, both of my both of my novels ended up with the working title being the title, but. So that's what I do. But what I say to all the authors that I work with um, is I make them give me a huge list, just a shotgun blaster. Like, give me the title you want, and then give me 10 variations on it, and give me every keyword that you think might fit. And we're just going to jumble these around until we find something that I like, you like, and the publisher likes. Um, And it's never the first one. Never. And so it's exactly what you're talking about. You need something that is unique, sounds cool, but expresses what the story is. Right on. Let's take another question. How do you know when you need to revise a second or third time or when you need to rewrite completely? (laughs) Outside outside of the editor telling you you need to. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and the, the time when... Uh, my editor at Privateer Press told me, uh, essentially, yeah, the, the format you've been writing to isn't actually the format we're going to use, so uh, you, you probably want to restructure this. Oh, yeah, I probably do. Um, that, that, was, that was time-consuming. Um, this, is, this is an important one, though. Uh, as we say often on this show, revision is, is one of, if not the most important parts of, of having a good book. So, so before, the point, before they get to the point, because most of our re- listeners don't have an editor to tell them this, how do you know? I've got uh, an idea. I think that um, you know, while editors and beta readers and all those people can tell you a lot um, and about what you should revise, I think the number one thing is you have to learn to trust your gut and also to listen to it and not let yourself get lazy because we all have places in the manuscript where you kind of feel like, you know that part maybe doesn't really feel right, or you kind of think it's strong, but you're te- so tempted to just like slip it by and see if anybody calls you on it, and like, oh, the beta readers didn't say anything, so it must be okay. Um, and the answer is, no, you need to, if it doesn't feel right to you, you know something's wrong, it's way better to go back and mess with it now until you're happy with it, um, rather than put it out there, because even if it does get out there in five years, You'll, know, you'll still know that there's a problem in that book. And so you just, you can't be lazy. You have to be honest with yourself. Yeah, and for me, you know, it's, I, I have a, a writing process where I simply understand that my first draft is like literal word vomit. Like, like it's just, it's, I, I spew out 5,000 words, 10,000 words sometimes in a day. Um, and I only write like one day a week. So, uh, but it's, uh, 
it, it, it's, it's getting something on the page. Uh, I, I am a reviser. Um, my first drafts are horrible. My agent, uh, I just recently got a new agent a year and a half ago, almost two years ago. And she's like, she wanted to see my first drafts. And I was like, no, you're going to think I'm a horrible writer and you've made a terrible decision. Um, but she wanted to see them so that we could work out things in the early process. Uh, but I, so I understand that anything that I write is going to be rewritten. Um, there are very few times where I will write something all the way through and go, yeah, I nailed that. It was right on. Um, a lot of the time I'm figuring out the plot, I'm figuring out the characters, and I understand that because I, by the time I get to the end, everything has changed about what I think about them. So I have to go back and, you know, again, uh, lace those things uh, into the manuscript. So for me, that's just kind of, again, there's a, there's a gut check, certainly, but you need to reach that level of your craft where you actually can trust your gut, and that involves lots of reading, lots of studying, lots of active practice um, as far as understanding um, the, uh, you know, how plot works and the structure of stories. So the thing, one of the things that really made revision come alive for me and be much less stressful was thinking about every draft as a performance of the story and that I could treat drafts one through however many as rehearsal. And I could go back and say, I can tell that better. I, or like I can fix the broken part of the song. And it was freeing to be able to step back from it, regard it as an incarnation of the thing and to not think that it was 100% part and parcel with the whole thing that exists in my brain and can be better. Uh, it's, uh, it's important to recognize that when you are revising, you are leveraging a skill set in order to fix problems that exist in your ma- manuscript, and you might not have developed the skill set to fix that problem yet. It is entirely possible for a new writer to arrive at revision three without the ability to execute on revision three. Um, I don't know how you identify that. I, I, don't know how, I, I don't know how you find out for yourself that you, you don't have that skill set. But I suspect that for, for newer writers, you write it, you revise it once per you know, what needs to be done, and then if it's not working, it might be time to write something else to, to refine the skill set. Because you can, you know, once you've developed good revision skills, the stuff that's sitting in the trunk is a gold mine that you can go back to and one revision pass, and it's awesome. But, uh, sorry, um, but if you've done the best you can do, like, sure, there's probably a revision step four, five, or six that in 20 years you'll know how to do, but if you've done the best you can do right now, send it out there. Let it get rejected, because maybe it won't. We're all getting better all the time, so don't let yourself be stymied by what you don't know yet. And yeah, to add kind of onto that one, like I look back at my first novel that went out the door and the narrative structure is just a hot mess. It is, it is a mess. Um, and I recognize that, but I did the absolute best that I could. Um, so I did the absolute best that I could to my ability at that time. And then it was, it was time to go. It had to ship. Um, and so at a certain point, some things have to ship and you have to put it out there. Um, and again, as, as Howard said, sometimes the best thing to do, don't be afraid to wait a few weeks, uh, you know, a month or two on a manuscript. Um, but at a certain point, if you're, it's great to finish stuff and then send it out. Awesome. So. This have, this, these have all been wonderful answers and great questions. Thank you all for being on the show. And uh, we have a writing prompt coming at us from James Sutter. Yeah. In honor of the recent Pluto missions, I'm going to say, take a piece of real-world astronomical phenomena, something like a tidally heated planet or a tidally locked planet, and make it part of the setting of a story. 
Very cool. All right. So this has been writing excuses. You are out of excuses. Now go write. If you aren't familiar with Locus Magazine, they're a long-standing and respected website, magazine, archive, and resource for science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Basically, they're the industry magazine for our genre. They also run the annual Locus Awards, a top-tier award that recognizes new, diverse, and excellent voices in speculative fiction. They tell the storyteller's stories through author interviews, book reviews, curated reading lists, international industry news, obituaries, and more. Locus has meant a lot to me, both personally and professionally. In my career, I've been interviewed by them, and I've also turned to them as a source of understanding who is involved in the industry. Locus is holding their annual fundraising drive to keep their doors open, lights on, and future bright. I'll be contributing to their crowdfunding campaign by donating a cutscene, some original art, and a couple of other things like... Do you want to do a one-on-one chat with me? So join me in supporting Locus. 